Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will begin after this message. Today's episode is presented by Shell. On July 9th in Brussels, Shell's CEO Ben van Buurden announced the company's support for net zero emissions in the EU by 2050. Shell hopes this can be endorsed by the EU governments as soon as possible, because it is a plan that shows real leadership on global climate action. Learn more at www.shell.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, and this week I'm signing off after 115 episodes. In this episode, the producing team turns the tables on me, putting me in the interview hot seat. More on that soon. In future episodes, you'll be in the hands of Politico's great pan-European reporting team, including Annabel Dixon from London, Reem Momtaz from Paris, and Matthew Karnitschnig from Berlin, not to mention the dozens of reporters in our Brussels newsroom. I can't leave you without one last dose of politics, however. Bojo's move yesterday to cancel Parliament for five weeks definitely increases the chances of hard Brexit. Few in Brussels believe any longer in a last-minute rework of the existing deal. They think only a UK election could prevent a no-deal Brexit at this point. One who I spoke to yesterday among the advisor class said that they were looking on the latest moves with fear and sadness in equal measure, but it doesn't change anything strategically for the EU. They are prepared for a no-deal Brexit, and that's what we're headed towards now. On the EU front, 12 out of 25 nominated commissioners are female, so a gender equal commission is still a real possibility. If you want that to happen, it's time to keep up the pressure. And of course, what we saw between the last episode and this one was the leaking of the European Commission's, the officials that is, 173-page document of what they would like the next commission to be doing, including radical trade and investment proposals, which would see the EU taking equity stakes in strategically useful, high-potential companies, amongst other things. Now, I would compare that to a move in the US by a group called the Business Roundtable, which was a bunch of CEOs moving to say that companies were about more than shareholders and they were moving to a stakeholder value model. And the reason I make that comparison is that both of these moves are essentially defense masquerading as offense. But enough of my opinions. Let's move on to the interview with, well, more of my opinions. So as it's your last episode as host, I thought it uh, might be good to turn the tables and I'll ask you some questions and you will be the interviewee for once. Are you okay with that? I agree reluctantly. (laughs) 
actually you did suggest it, but it I is, did it, not suggest. <laughs> but it is a good idea. So <laughs> we're going to we're going to do it. And before I thought we'll do some sort of quick fire stuff and look back at the podcast. We've got more than a hundred episodes to pick from. But before we did that, I thought it, it would be good just for people who maybe came into political or the podcast not right at the beginning, just to tell people how you got here. How did you get to? How did I get Poli- to Brussels? How did you get to, yeah, to political Europe? Oh, the wow. whole story. Okay, I'll give you the medium length version. So I grew up in Australia, studied in Australia, thought I would be a journalist and then decided I was too political. Thought I would somehow get involved in politics and decided I really did not like Australian politics and I didn't speak any other languages. So I ran away to London and that was fun. And then I got offered the chance to do a secondment in Brussels and I wasn't really qualified for it at all. Literally, like I didn't hit seven of the eight criteria, but it was to be a speechwriter in Brussels and I had written speeches before. So I was the only person who'd ever written a speech who applied for the job, got it, thought I was coming here to make a bunch of sort of EU level money, like really quite a mercenary move. And that was 12 years ago. And then I stayed and I worked for a really great woman at the European Commission. And when she left, I was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to be part of the Juncker team or anything like that. And then luckily the very next month Politico came along and then they flat out ignored me for three months of me trying to get myself hired and get an interview. They probably just thought I was some weird blogger or sort of, I don't know, attention seeker. Anyway, finally got an interview, was allowed to start in April 2015. And I have been serving the greater public and hopefully your commutes ever since. Absolutely. Uh, it's really the long the, version, wasn't no, it? No, it wasn't that long because you missed out the fact that you worked in the UK civil service as well. And yes, one of the things for those of us who've got to know you more recently is mm-hmm. how on earth did you manage to be a civil servant or do we have the wrong impression of the civil service? I am very good at undertaking the task that has been allocated to me. So people in America should get ready for me being able to do a different task when I get there. Mm. I don't know how to say it. It was like quite political. Like it Mm. wasn't in Downing Street, but you worked with the Downing Street operation quite a lot. And in the end, I worked for the cabinet secretary. So he obviously deals with the prime minister all of the time. And we were trying to do a program of modernizing and reforming how the civil service should operate. Mm. So I think I'm a bit of a modernizer. And, you know, I got to do things that were kind of at the cutting edge of what the civil service was doing at the time. What were the differences between working in the UK civil service and working in the commission? How, how different a culture is it's that? It's just so international here. And it's not something you can ever know until you've experienced it. Where there's a lot of smart people in the UK, so it's not about intellect or anything like that. But for most of them, the world ends kind of at the M25 or at the very least it, it ends sort of when you hit the water on the edge of Great Britain. And they're not really plugged into what the EU is or how it works. Some people, if I guess if you're in the foreign office, you do think globally. But most people, they really think kind of just purely in their departmental terms or in UK terms. And the UK is big enough that people can fall into that trap, basically. And coming from Australia, it's not big enough where you can ever be in that trap. So I felt probably more at home in the end in Brussels. And I really think it's very rare that in such a small city you have so many influences and languages and ways of thinking about the world all mingling together, basically. So what were the best and worst things about working inside the commission? The people are very smart, absolutely. And so you got to work on a scale in terms of smart people and big global issues that you probably don't in many other places. 
you know, I, I was dealing with digital issues a lot of the time, and before that, dealing with competition issues. So the area where the EU has the most power, competition, and the area that is affecting the most of our lives. And to do that with 500 million people in mind, it's kind of, you don't get to do that in many places. And the, the worst thing? The worst thing, people saying no, like a kind of resistance to possibility and, and opportunity. So people having learned the hard way that you don't get everything you want in a legislative process encourages people maybe not to shoot as high as they could. And then there are some people, I think they just kill themselves getting into the system. Like it's exceptionally difficult to get a job inside the EU. And then I think you're kind of burnt out some of the time once you got there. And so there really are some people, not many, but some people just there for the ride. You know, they can't be fired at all. And they're in at 10, they're out at 4.30. And that's the minority. Like I've worked with the people doing the long hours and so on in the the commissioner's offices a lot of the time. But, you know, that is frustrating. Like I'm someone with a lot of energy and ideas and I was constantly seen as the kind of disruptive force. Mm. Did you write any speeches you're particularly proud of? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I did actually. But that was mostly for Nelly, I guess, in competition. So Nelly Cruz who was... Yeah, sorry, Nelly Cruz. We did a lot around the banking crisis and really trying to say why the single market needed to survive people like Nicholas Sarkozy or people who just wanted to go back into protectionism. And that was hard, brutal sort of stuff. You really had to lay out how people's lives and budgets were going to be wrecked if they gave into these sort of temptations. And then the one that I am most proud of is when I was getting a flight to Cairo with Cruz and she was thinking about her legacy and she was really disappointed at a speech that someone else had drafted for her. And she said, this isn't a legacy. Like, I I don't think I can give this speech. You know, what else could we do? And I was like, you know, the only thing anyone will remember is if you really end the mobile roaming charges or not. And she was like, okay, go and write me that speech. So I wrote the whole speech in the last 45 minutes of the flight. And then we conspired behind everyone else's back to deliver that speech in the parliament three days later when we'd returned from the trip to Cairo. And, you know, kind of people were let in on it about six hours before it happened. But, you know, she was basically dumping a massive block of legislation on people a year before the end of her term. And in a very tempting way for parliamentarians, where the pitch was essentially, if you back me on this, if we work together, you can go all go back to your constituents and say you ended mobile roaming charges in time for the election. That's going to get you re-elected. And we thought it was the right thing to do, but obviously we were using very clear, transparent bait um, <laughs> to get those MEPs to agree. And and in the end, we did it. In fact, I it was part of outmaneuvering Martin Selmayr to make that happen. Oh, he, really? He wanted to block that package of reforms. Okay. So there you go. People all around Europe listening now. Well, actually, without giving it too I much... I think Martin of a... probably agreed in substance and he yeah. didn't agree with the timeline and he wanted some more credit for it. Right. And that wasn't going to happen if we got our way. And yeah. Okay. Well, people across Europe listening now who are not paying roaming charges anymore, now you know who you have to thank. And A team one... effort, but I got sure. the ball rolling. Yeah. And you, you wrote the words that kind of launched it. Yes. Absolutely. That's interesting, actually. And one of the things we learned today in this office, uh, one of our editors learned to his great cost, is that Switzerland is, of course, not part of the uh, no roaming charges. And I won't say how much he he had to pay, (laughs) partly as a result of the fact that his son called him on FaceTime for about half an hour while he was in Switzerland. So, However, we- as a result of another regulation that we were involved in, you cannot be charged more than 50 euros on that bill unless you consented. Okay, well, so I think unfortunately is, yeah. he did years ago. He said no limit. 
and they seem to have oh no per month okay no no well, no, no no he should take that up okay that's a bit of bonus content for one person in particular anyway what do people get wrong most about the european commission when they think about it or you know imagine it or talk about it was there a kind of misapprehension that you felt was often it's around exceptionally it? transparent even if it is confusing so people who believe that somehow there is a secret society here in Brussels that is trying to re-engineer your life and that there's no way to influence it. I don't think that's true. I think it's hard to figure out how to influence it some of the time, but most of the information is there. And one way or another, you can insert yourself into that process if you're interested to do it. Okay. If you just, if we do a kind of retrospective on your whole time here, what will you miss most? Brussels is very walkable. And I know that sounds strange, but it's a quite dense, quirky city, and you can explore it in so many different ways. You have to give it time. Like, it's not a city you can enjoy on a two-day visit. Like, it opens itself up to you only over time. And I think Belgians can be quite closed, but it's a really beautiful set of communities once you can connect into it. And they're really, really tight-knit communities. And I didn't get that until the Brussels attacks, where I think almost like it's almost in the cultural DNA of the country to resist outsiders and their criticism or their attempts to hijack or dominate the country. And there was a lot of really legitimate criticisms about how those threats were handled in the lead up to the attacks, how they were handled during and immediately after the attacks. And what I appreciated only afterwards, after kind of being tough on CNN and all of that, was that other countries could have really done knee-jerk reactions to all of that, you know, in terms of really heavy, harsh security legislation, emergency decrees and things like that. And the Belgians didn't do that. They said, we're going to handle this our own way. And they kept their equilibrium as a result. Now, at a high price, I would say, in the lead up. But, mm. you know, they didn't they didn't overreact. And that's to their credit because they have this very, very intricate set of institutions and connections and networks and communities. And it's a really stable society in that regard. Is there a particular place, part of Brussels you'll miss? Or I don't know, a particular Ooh. restaurant, bar, oh, cafe? No, that's too tough because there's so <laughs> many. Um, I, I don't know. I don't always use the advantages of Brussels, but I like having them at my disposal. So I've lived in St. Catherine for the last four years in this really cool apartment. And it's an apartment I actually walked into for a party on my third weekend in Brussels. And I was like, wow, this is the Brussels way. I've exactly come to the right place. Who gets to live in such a cool apartment? And then by a complete coincidence, I got to live in it maybe like nine years later for the last four years. And that's downtown. So I really recommend downtown. And people say it's like dirty or horrible and you should just live in an uh, expat sort of area. No, 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 no. Go throw yourself into Brussels and go live in the center. And you do have a very nice apartment. And it is an, an one of the nice things about Brussels is that those things do not cost the fortune they would cost in other cities, right? Exactly. I will, I will never be living in such an apartment again unless I come back to Brussels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's time for a break now. We'll come back after this message with a special look back at the most memorable moments of the last 150. 15 episodes of the podcast. A message from Shell. Shell CEO Ben Van Buren announced on July 9th in Brussels the company's support for climate neutrality in the EU by 2050. Delivering on it will require unprecedented collaboration and action between all parts of society. The European Council should commit to an energy transition that achieves net zero emissions in the EU by 2050 as soon as possible. An enabling framework to accelerate investment in cleaner energy and carbon sinks is critical to enable companies like Shell to adapt and respond quickly. 
Businesses from all sectors will need to provide low-carbon solutions which are affordable, convenient and compelling for their customers. We will continue to play our part. In December 2017, Shell announced its net carbon footprint ambition. Our plan is to reduce the net carbon footprint of the energy products we sell in step with society's progress towards meeting the Paris Agreement. That means fewer greenhouse gases emitted on average with each unit of energy we sell by around 20% by 2035 and by around half by 2050. Read more about Shell's net carbon footprint ambition at www.shell.com. Okay, so I thought we could just looking back in the podcast and like I say, we have more than 100 episodes. So it's a lot to think back on from our early beginnings. But also if anybody was listening very carefully, they may have heard a siren while we were talking earlier. And that's part of the tradition of this podcast (laughs) that we record it in Ryan's office. And, you know, you get we do our best with soundproofing, but you do get a bit of real Brussels. We are so much better. We were a mess with the sound when this thing began and... Thanks to our producer, Wei Dong, yeah, and a lot of trials absolutely. and experiments, we bring you the beautiful audio you're listening to right now. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think of all the interviews you've done? I mean, mainly for the podcast, though you've done others also on stage, some of which we've used in the podcast. But is there one interview that stands out? No, think? it's so obvious now. I should know the answer. The one I enjoyed the most was Jacinda Ardern. Now, I forgot the one fun thing that we do in these interviews. We do a rapid fire that's session. not fun that's not no it fun. is fun it's, it's fun. only fun for yeah. you no 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 because we come we come because i think she demonstrates a really interesting way of leading if i wanted to summarize for me what we needed to do differently it was about bringing into politics values that we actually teach our kids but for some reason when you get to that level of leadership we drop all of those things that we think are so critical to making healthy societies and we say, no, actually, we expect our politicians to be assertive and brash and bold and bold to lie. And we just expect that. Mm. And almost by accident, she kind of just was her authentic self in developing that leadership style. And I think the rest of the world's politicians have a lot to learn from that. So I absolutely enjoyed talking to her the most. Right. The Prime Minister of New Zealand. And you knew her from way back, right? Yeah. So I, we, we met like 20 years ago and, and she worked with me in the cabinet office in London. So we were all drinking buddies from those days. But obviously on the other side of the world and being a senior politician, we haven't caught up so much in the last 10 years, but it was yeah. good to reconnect. But I think that also helped with the interview that you had that kind of shared history. But as you say, and one of the things she said in the interview was that she was maybe helped by the fact that she wasn't really expecting to be in the position she was in, right? She mm-hmm. was the deputy suddenly thrust into and didn't almost yep. have time Six to like... before an election. Almost didn't have time to kind of do all the mm-hmm. brainstorming or consulting you might do to kind of yep. decide how you're going to be. Yep. She just had to yep. be herself. But one of the things I learned from Natalie Cruz in the commission is the importance of good judgment. And that's not something you can teach very easily. And I think Jacinda Ardern has good judgment. And you saw that by her having the confidence to roll with her natural style. You saw it after the Christchurch uh, attack as well. And if someone has good judgment, that's something you really need to look for, whether it's someone you're voting for, whether it's the organization you're choosing to work for, the partner you're choosing in life. Like, judgment really counts. And and she's got it. Yeah. Any others that stand out? Uh, I remember the Blair one being, uh, you know, a good, interesting interview, Tony Blair. So are we good on sound levels? Okay. Well, Tony Blair, 
First of all, thank you for joining us on... Politico Where we forgot to press record on the ah. microphone. But we had a backup, right? We did have a backup. Okay. Thank God for my iPhone. <laughs> I mean, the one among the ones that have done best is actually one with Martin Selmayr that you did just after the European Parliament election, just if, if in yeah. terms of listeners. Well, that's about timing, I would say. I mean, I think we had a good rapport. First of all, Ryan, let me say I'm very happy to be here. And not only sitting next to you, it was the first time ever that we meet. So That is true. I find that very good. <laughs> Three that's, years of playbook without meeting Martin that's, Selmer. That's, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> um, because I have heard about you. <laughs> <laughs> but Martin Selmer is a person with a lot of power and influence, but also a very big reputation in Brussels. And so people often would see him as the kind of power behind whatever throne was up for discussion. And so to have him, who wasn't a candidate in the elections, come into the spotlight for a rare interview the day after the elections and to do it alongside the political parties, I think it was a really good political chemistry, basically. And if we had done that interview at another time, it would have been interesting, but it wouldn't have been as magnetic as it turned out to be. Another one was you interviewed all the lead candidates, the official lead candidates. That was a project in coordination. Yeah, we got Manfred Weber to turn up for an interview. There you go. Didn't turn up for the debate. Yeah. I'm not going to let that one yeah. go. Yeah. How did you find them and what did you learn from interviewing them? Were there any you felt were particularly open or interesting or was everybody in candidate mode? The one I was most disappointed by was Vestager. It wasn't a terrible interview and we get along personally. Like I don't, it's not a, a judgment of her as a person, but she was really holding back. She wasn't even willing to say that she wanted to be commission president. And that for me was a kind of fundamental missing ingredient. It's like, well, why are we in a TV studio? We recorded it originally for a television program. Why is everyone in this room going to so much effort if you can't even say you want to be mm. commission president? And I still don't have an answer to that question, but I think when people hold back something that fundamental, from an yeah. interview, it hurts them. It doesn't yeah. didn't hurt us in the end, but I think she could have been more impactful had she told us what she really thought on that front. I liked talking to the conservative and reformist candidate, Jan Zaradil. You know, maybe he's not exactly in line with his party, but he's a very thoughtful critic of the EU. Mm. And I really don't like people who criticise the EU without thinking about it. There's a lot to criticise, and it's our job at Politico to keep the EU accountable, but the people who just kind of shout the mindless slogans, like it's not very interesting. And Jan mm. Zaradil is a very thoughtful critic, so mm. I like that a lot. And we're going to hear more from all of them, I think. Like they're very smart people, each of them. Yeah, and I think the Vesta, where you do ask her. But someone has to take the job. So Indeed. you are a candidate for the position of commission president. Well, actually, I said to my home country, who don't really want to hear about it, that I would very much like to continue as a commissioner mm-hmm. because in my field, we're in the middle of something. I think we can do a lot more to serve Europeans even better, but that would be my first choice. Okay. And she kind of dances around and says, well, I'd be happy just to have my old job back. I mean, I think we found that that cost her in the end, that Mm -hmm. that she may have been taken more seriously as a commission presidential candidate when the leaders were huddled in that Mm all-night summit, if she'd actually put her hand up earlier and that definitely seemed to count against her with some people. She didn't have a great hand to play. Like she was from the third biggest party, a party that had dropped down to being at some points the fifth biggest in the last five years. So she had to tread very carefully. But I do think that you've got to really want it. No one's going to give you something like the commission presidency. Unless you're you're just hanging out in Germany. But I I had her on the shortlist in April 2018. You did. So I am calling that. 
Yeah. Um, and then some of the other guests, I suppose, are even people who weren't big names at all. Another episode which did very well for us was Julia Abner, I believe, mm-hmm. yep. who tells a little bit I about I think her. in general, that's a very important point to make, is that the original thought behind this podcast was to pull back the curtain and to talk to people about how they do their job related to the EU and to have people understand a bit more about how this town operates. So it's not a myth, but it's something you can grapple with. And I really enjoy those ones, even with people who aren't big names. And apparently the listeners do too, because mm. the listening figures are not necessarily better. Unless it's a really big name like a Gates or a Blair, you get just as many people listening to, to some of these other names. And Julia Ebner, I interviewed her in the Austrian Alps in August in 2018. And it was at a panel about extremism. And she really threw herself into extremist networks. She didn't lie i wouldn't say it's that but she kind of embedded herself and went along to a lot of their rallies and tried to really understand them and why people join those networks what motivates them what kind of sucks them in or traps them in there and one of the things she found was that it was kind of like their social lifeline and it was very hard to leave because you were kind of giving up your whole life even if you had come to question the ideology that you were sort of espousing or enabling by being in that network and i love being surprised like that, like someone who makes you think in a new way about an issue that's always in the headlines. I think it's impressive when someone can do that. And I very much enjoyed talking to Julia. Another person who sprang a surprise was Pascal Smeets, the Belgian politician. Oh, yes. I should say he was my favorite one. That really? got the most notoriety. I yeah. That. yeah. Do you remember what he said? or what Oh, he I remember had? exactly. And I'll tell you how it happened as well. So we had got a nice little tour of his office. Like this. Okay. Okay. And I, I think he's a very impressive thinker as well. And that tends to be how we sort of approach people and choose them for the podcast. And he's a real reformer in a city that struggles to reform. And he's a local Brussels politician and has been a minister before he got involved at this level. And he was telling me all about his sort of Brussels reform plans. And then right at the end of the podcast, like literally the last the question. What's your favorite thing about Brussels? Place, thing, person, you can choose. Um, you know, now I'm going to say something weird. He <laughs> says... I compare Brussels very often with a whore, with a prostitute. Brussels is like a whore. Because at the same time, it's beautiful, it's very horny, but at the same time, it can be ugly. And it's attractive, and at the same time, disattractive. And it's nice in its ugliness, and everything is nice. I was like, well, all right, that's let's elaborate. <laughs> and he sort of dug himself even further into the hole, and it was the very last question. And then sort of turns to his advisor who's sitting next to him, he's like, how did I do? Was it okay, my dear? It was good. <laughs> and the guy was just like, I don't even know what to say. Like, I do yeah. not know what to say. And yeah, that obviously exploded across Belgian politics. Not only from people who were trying to defend Brussels. Like, it was just such an open goal to criticize the man. But people who are often not doing anything for Brussels themselves were just using this as an opportunity to score points. But, you know, all publicity is good publicity sometimes. Right. I mean, that probably got him a lot more attention for his proposals than he would otherwise have got. Yeah, he's been quite unpopular in some parts of the country. So I suppose with a certain demographic, he gets a bit of that Trumpian Boris Johnson telling it straight sort of boost as well as people who think he was talking inappropriately. Mm. Do you have any memory of a particularly difficult interview? (laughs) We didn't publish them. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, I mean, people can be very stiff. And the thing I always encourage 
I guess, to think about is to be like, just think like we're chatting. Like the podcast is not a gotcha interview. I, you know, if you're going to call Brussels a whore, we are going to run with that, but I'm not here to trip you up. And, you know, this is a chance for you to explain your idea or your job or your best self. Go ahead and do it. And most people take that advice. And some people are kind of too busy reading out a script. And they're some of the few that didn't make it across the finish line. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on what you might be most proud of about the podcast? Hmm. In terms of what, what I I like that we found a way to talk about the harassment issue before the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke in in the US. And that wasn't something that we set out to do, but what we set out to do was give people a bit of a forum to engage. I thought that podcasting was a quite intimate format and so we needed to have this actual dialogue and two-way relationship with all of you who would download it and listen to it each week. And it became very clear very quickly that people in the parliament feel like it's an unhealthy culture in a lot of respects. And they're very conflicted about it because they're also very passionate about the people they work for, their parties, the ideas, and the EU project as well. Often you're skeptics too, so it's both sides of that argument. And I think that was tricky because a lot of people did not want to talk about those issues in a way that would allow Politico to write a story. You know, it's obviously an issue of human interest, but to write a proper news story or to name people that are being accused of something, you have to have more than anonymous sort of tips and information. But it's very clear there's an issue down there. And so we found a way through our panel to give people advice without naming and shaming anybody. And I hope that was helpful. Yeah, I think it really was quite interesting why that idea, the sort of dear political format that we had, which could be used humorously, Mm -hmm. but actually we ended up with people really feeling able to confide. EU confidential. We didn't realise we were going to get you to confide in us, but I'm glad that. It worked out very well. Most embarrassing moment? (laughs) It's definitely not recording Tony Blair. (laughs) That was hilarious. Oh, no, no, I take that back. Herman Van Rompuy, who was the first European Council president, we he was kind of one of the first big names on the podcast. And so I, I was determined to take it very seriously. And in the beginning, we had these little boxes, these kind of foldable storage things that you buy at Ikea for two or three euros. And we would kit them out with these eggshell-shaped pieces of foam. And then we would shove the microphone in it. And I took these boxes down to Herman Van Rompuy's office. Now it's time to hear from Herman Van Rompuy the former president of the European Council, also the former Prime Minister of Belgium, and now heading up the European Policy Centre. And I made him almost like put his head into the box and talk into it while I sat on the other side of the table talking into my box. Okay. Okay, I think, I think we're good. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, welcome to EU Confidential, and it Mr. Van looked Van ridiculous uh, and points to Herman Van Rompuy for doing that. Yeah. Good on him. Did he write you a haiku as well? He did. Okay, yeah. yeah. Does that for everyone though, doesn't he? Well, I started the trend, Andrew. <laughs> now he does it for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, best and worst sound quality. <laughs> <laughs> like in scale or yeah, I don't know. actual incident? Anything where we remember. I mean, I'm just trying to remember. Some of our early ones, definitely. Uh, Somehow we chose literally the worst room in the Politico building to begin doing yeah. this. And we just could not control the heating and the aircon. That was terrible. The best is at the Parliament studio. Mm-hmm. But those people need to get their act together. Let me 
issue some advice to anyone down at the parliament. If you want people to write about your institution and then they want to make a podcast or some other interview and it's about what goes on in that parliament, they should have access to that studio. But I've been refused with the French finance minister before. We've been refused because we didn't have an MEP who was being interviewed at the time. We even turned up with one of the MEPs, Cecile Kienge, when we were looking at the Brussels So White issue and we were just like abandoned, <laughs> locked outside of the studio that we made a booking for. And I think that's a bit of rules is rules mentality that the Parliament Civil Service could get rid of. There are six nearly always empty studios down there and there's a lot of people that could make some great podcasts if they made the rules a bit more flexible. Yeah. That was a rant. And a half. <laughs> it's okay. You couldn't, well, you couldn't, you couldn't bow out without, you know, having a bit of a pop at somebody. And yeah, we would like to have that. I think that studio could be a lot more open and accessible. Is there anybody that you wish we had interviewed that you didn't manage to interview while you were here? Yeah, I wish we had interviewed David Davis. And we got to do Jeremy Hunt in the end as foreign secretary. And I know that David Davis's team would listen to the podcast. But I think that he flubbed a lot of his time as Brexit secretary and talked in generalities and slogans and ideologies, but not in the details and the substance of what was going on. And for someone who has played such a large role in disrupting, in general, UK and European politics, like I would have wanted to hold his feet to the fire and give him a shot to answer some questions. But I don't think he ever really did that in the press room in Brussels. And he should have done that more. Yeah. Anybody you'd still like to interview? Also in terms Sabine of- Vane, absolutely. Okay. I will Sabine, if you're listening, I will fly across an ocean or fall into a ditch to talk to you next time you're at a trade negotiation in Washington or wherever you want to be. Because I just love her personality and she doesn't like the spotlight. I added her onto the first women shaping Brussels list, actually, mm. before she kind of had this kind of mythology around her Brexit negotiating skills. And I wrote to her and said, oh, okay, we've got this photo. Would you like this photo or another one to go with the list? And she's like, oh, I would like not to be on the list. Mm. I was like, you don't get to choose. Yeah, we get that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't apologize for that, but I would love to have you on any podcast in the future. For people who don't know, she was Michelle Barney's deputy as the Brexit negotiator and is now the head of DG Trade, the the trade body. But it's interesting, she seems to have found a kind of personality on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Some people seem to find that quite a useful... How have you found that, by the way? Because Twitter, you know, yeah. how obviously a big part of what you do, you know, you're the most followed sort of person in the Brussels bubble on Twitter. How do you deal with that? And how do you interact with people? How do you switch off? How have you found kind of being yeah. permanently kind of connected in that way? I try to be really engaged. Like I try to answer most people, not the direct messages. I don't really look at that. But when people write back to a tweet, I try and answer. I got into a really horrible fight one time over the referendum that took place in the Netherlands about a trade deal with the Ukraine, basically, or the EU's relationship with Ukraine. And then I just came to realize it was probably Russian bots that were actually insulting me and keeping me up at two in the morning. And from that moment on, I decided not to reply more than once to anything, basically, (laughs) unless it was, I don't know, some weird sporting event. Yeah, 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 it's, it's good to be open-minded, but there's yeah. no point having a fight in 280 characters about a really complex yeah. issue. That's just not what the forum should be for. Yeah, yeah. So. I think one reply is that's a good idea, actually, rather than getting into the back and forth. You say your bit, you know, I say mine. We both said our bit, and then on we go. Um, we tried to think of some quick-fire questions, uh-huh. some sort of either-or. We didn't really do very well, if I'm <laughs> honest with you. The best one was, so these are, you know, quick-fire, either-or. So... Eurovision or European Parliament election? Eurovision. Every time? No. <laughs> but 
but push comes to shove. I just promise to be consistent. Okay. Sydney or Saint-Gilles? Oh. Oh, what season? I don't know. You can choose. The best of each. Sydney and summer. Saint-Gilles in summer. That's a politician's (laughs) answer. Flanders or Wallonia? Flanders. Commission or council? Oh. Council for the canteen. Commission for the ideas. Swimming or weekend editing shift? Swimming. <laughs> Was that a tough one? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we're just about out of them. Favourite obscure EU body? Oh, Cetapop. <laughs> what? Cetapop is the vocational training institution agency of the commission in Thessaloniki in Greece, and they are still not happy about the Google ranking I achieved for them by putting them on a list of 10 EU agencies you've never heard of. Okay, but it is your favourite? Or do you just like it? It's memorable. Yeah. As, you know. Great name. Okay. <laughs> Maybe finally, what, what are you going to be doing next? Uh, you know, tell, tell I should say question. EU Ombudsman. I think they mm. have a tough gig. They don't have a lot of power. They do have sort of the influence of a good office is what you mm. might say if you're talking in like diplomatic language. And I think Emily O'Reilly's a tough cookie and, you know, she's been unafraid to call mm. people out. So I think that generally that, body is doing an important thing and we had her as a you had her as a guest yeah we did in yeah, strasbourg yeah. which yep. was an also a really mm-hmm. good interview i think but also she is a former journalist but yep. she and she knows how to talk in a way that is accessible to people outside exactly. the bubble she was good yeah and so tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing next all right um some of it is to be shaped on arrival but I get the title of senior editor, and I think the the point of that is to allow me to work in a few different platforms and, and issues. So in the US, just for sorry, people. yes, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to move to Washington, but do quite a bit of work out of New York as well. And so I will try and work on anything that's global facing. And so whether that is United Nations, sort of global conferences and summits, and I want to try and really decode the American election for non-Americans. And I don't know exactly what the sort of outlet for that is going to be. But I do think that the world obsesses about this election, but that American media make content for Americans or with themselves in mind primarily. And I want to be somebody who acts as a little bit of a sort of a good angel, but a conscience there going like, hang on, there is a whole rest of the world that cares about this. And I can do a bit of that translation. I think I've done a pretty good job translating the EU for audiences that didn't know they cared about it or thought they shouldn't care about it. And hopefully I can kind of bring people a bit closer to that bizarre, endless, and expensive American election process. Okay. And people can obviously keep following you on Twitter. You'll be At back Politico on Ryan. I can't believe I never said that out loud on this podcast <laughs> yeah. before. Yeah. And you will continue to contribute to this podcast and others, especially once the election gets into full swing. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, and uh, it's au revoir, not goodbye. All right. Well, I'm going to let you to do the uh, the final little outro which you can do now or record later. That's all we've got time for on this era of EU Confidential. (laughs) (laughs) So perfect. We are not cutting that. Andrew's phone just fell on the floor. That's all we've got time for on this era of EU Confidential. Thanks, as always, uh, to our team. Podcasting is a team effort. Andrew Gray, Wei Dong Lin, and Izzy Borshoff made this episode possible. See you in the next life.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.